Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Madison, thanks for that reading and Ken and the uh, worship team and the choir, thank you for your songs this morning and leading us in to praising the Lord. That was uh, stirring and fitting for our passage today as we look at First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If I don't know you or haven't met you, my name is Jamie Trussell. I do have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder at Harvest Church here in Memphis and the real joy of spending time in God's Word with you this morning at a church that uh, both my wife and I uh, both love and, and hold dear here at First Devan. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 begins like this. In this you rejoice. Now we pause there because that alerts us to something that came right before it. Okay, so Peter here is instructing us to rejoice in something. Now we're only going to be able to approximate 6, 7, 8, and 9 uh, effectively into our lives if we realize the foundation upon which it's built, which are verses 3, 4, and 5. So when he says, in this you rejoice... We should be asking, in what? Or what, what is the catalyst? What is the centerpiece of this rejoicing? So we back up to look briefly at what Peter's already instructed them in. It says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. So what do we rejoice in? God's great mercy that does something. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what do we rejoice in? Well, God's great mercy, by his mercy, his power, his prerogative, his initiative, God did something. He caused us to be born again, rebirthed, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. So if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ by faith and his finished work on this cross and his resurrection from the dead, Peter says, you are birthed again says it's to a living hope. So our hope is alive and biblically considered, uh, hope isn't something that you, you wish happens and it may or may not. Hope is the guaranteed fulfillment of our greatest desire, that one day there is a day coming that will not look like it does now. There is a day coming when all wrongs will be righted, right? all tears wiped away, all sorrow turned to joy. Peter says that is guaranteed but it's guaranteed by something. And that something is, if you look at it with me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? The ultimate event in all of human history, the singular act through which all things take on meaning. Here, Peter says, your hope is alive because Jesus walked out of that grave, amen? amen. Says rejoice. In that, God's great mercy, the resurrection of Christ, the living hope. And then he says this, verse 4, you have an inheritance. There's something waiting on us. 
It was secured by Christ. It's going to be given to God's people. And this inheritance, Peter modifies by saying it's imperishable. It cannot go away. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. Who, verse 5, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's this other part that Peter says we should rejoice in? It says, you rejoice and I rejoice that the power of God guards us until that day. He keeps us, enabling us to persevere until the end. Peter says, rejoice. God saved you. His work, his initiative, his power. Your hope is alive. And there's a day coming, and God guarantees you'll make it there if you're truly his by his divine prerogative and power. And Peter says, that is worth rejoicing. Amen? Amen. Now, why does he give it to us? So he doesn't just record those words as a really fancy, deep theological way to stir our minds. He gives it to us because he's got to lay a foundation, who God is and what he's done, because what he's about to instruct us in, in verses six through nine, is incredibly difficult. In fact, it's impossible apart from verses three, four, and five being true. Okay, so before we get to the text this morning, let me uh, just by way of disclaimer, offer this to you. Peter's about to write to us about suffering. And I'm going to, hopefully, in the power of the Spirit, clearly and accurately unpack biblically what that is, how to navigate it, what God says about it. And I need to acknowledge on the front end that I can preach it and teach it that does not mean that I have experienced it to the same degree that many of you have. And so as we're going through this, you may feel a little bit of this, but yeah, but you don't know what it's like to go through you know, X, Y, or Z. And I will tell you in the front end, that's probably true. I may not have tasted the pain and trial that, that many of you have. So let's acknowledge that. But I do trust this that what's biblically true remains the same. And in God's kindness and power of the Spirit, let's all ask and hope this morning that he takes his word and applies it into each and every arena that we find our lives. And Peter, in a very pastoral way, is not going to be dismissive of the reality of pain but he is going to hopefully frame how we interact with it and our perspective on it. And so he says in verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Now verse six, he's going to give us uh, four ways of, of kind of situating our pain, four things that are true about it. And the first thing that he says about our suffering, now I'll tell you contextually, I think kind of the, the uh, thing that he's acutely aware of is suffering and trial specifically for being a Christian. Right? So he's writing most likely in the mid-60s, uh, maybe early 60s, a guy named Nero is emperor of Rome. 
Nero is very fond of persecuting Christians, burning them, killing them, torturing them. Right, thus, this group of people Peter's writing to, most likely dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, uh, also face these same things. And so he has that in mind, and yet the biblical imperatives and instructions apply broadly, because as we will see, pain and suffering come home to us in a multitude of ways. And the first thing Peter says about all of this, trial, tribulation, pain, suffering, is it is but a little while. Now, if you're in a difficult moment and it's 15 minutes, you go, sure, sure, that's a little while. If you've encountered ongoing pain and suffering and trial for 15 years, that does not feel like a little while. So what do we say to that? And how can Peter, in both situations, 15 minutes or 15 years, take both of those and put this temporal clause of a little while on top of them. Well, what Peter is doing is he says, regardless of how long it is on earth, when you take that and juxtapose it or overlay it with all of eternity, Peter says, it does wind up being a very short thing. He says, it may feel and be true that it lasts for a long time on earth. But you have an eternity for which that pain and suffering will not be true. And when those things are compared, Peter says, it is. But for a little while, then he says this, if necessary. So not only in light of eternity, may the suffering and pain kind of be approximated as a small amount of time, though in real time, it may not feel that way. And that's okay. That's true in how we feel and process it. But then he says, if necessary. Now, Peter, you just told me that God's great mercy saved me. His power protects me. Christ rose for the dead to secure it for me. There's an inheritance waiting on me. And this God, this loving, gracious, powerful God promises me I'm going to get there. And now you're telling me that very same God may deem it necessary that I suffer? Peter says, yes. And as all of us should do, Why? In what world does that make sense? For what point? For what purpose? Well, Peter's going to answer that in verse 7. He's going to specifically tell us why God may deem it necessary that we suffer. But before he does that, he gives us two more things, two more ways to situate and frame the difficulties we will go through, right? So it's a little bit of time when compared to eternity. God may deem it necessary. Then he says that we will be distressed or grieved by them. Peter is not dismissive of the pain. So his perspective is not, hey, look, you've got an eternity with Jesus. 
You're suffering, it's but for a small time. Get over it. Move on. Get some perspective here. Don't you know you're going to be with Jesus one day? It's not what he says. He says, and by the way, it is going to hurt. And it's going to be painful. And it's going to be difficult. If your translation says grievous, the the original language there, it is causing mental distress. It is going to be a distressing, hard, difficult thing. So Peter, in a very pastoral way, he acknowledges the pain of suffering and trials, and he is not dismissive of it. So in light of eternity, is it a short amount of time? Yes. Does it still hurt? Yes. Does God say it may be necessary? Yes. And then he says this. He calls the trials various. Now, the idea originally considered of various is is this language of multicolored. Okay, so Peter's point in saying that the trials and sufferings and tribulations that we will suffer, that they're multicolored, he says, is they can come home to us in a thousand different ways. Right, incidentally, that's why lives that are preeminently concerned with pain management or insulating ourselves from difficulty are wasted lives because they're impossible. The ways that we can hurt and suffer and experience pain, Peter says, it is multicolored. It is various. There are a multitude of them and you cannot escape. No one gets out of this thing without going through pain. Trial, suffering, tribulation. And knowing that, that's why Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I pray that you are comforted by the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions because he knows not only that it will happen, but that God may deem it necessary. Okay, there's a, I always hesitate to reference movies and sermons because half the people wish I never mention it because then their kids want to watch it. So this is not an endorsement of family movie night. It's just simply for an illustration. I do like a movie, don't endorse it, but like a movie called Legends of the Fall. Okay, uh, it's Anthony Hopkins, Brad Pitt. Uh, and Anthony Hopkins, an older man in the movie, his wife dies. He's got a lot of personal tragedy. And so he moves his family right to this right, unspeakably beautiful piece of land in Wyoming. And you learn as the movie goes uh, why he did it. And at one point, he says, I hoped to escape the madness by going over the mountains. And what you find in that movie is that the madness still finds him and his family. And they suffer tragedy time after time after time. It's an incredibly rich, biblically-themed movie. What's the point? You cannot escape the madness over the mountains. There is no place we can go that the fallenness of this world or the sufferings of this life won't find us. And so aiming our life 
at pain prevention is a fairly futile activity. So how do we navigate it? Right, well, let's answer two questions, then we'll be done. Yes, how we navigate it, that'll be number two. But number one, let's go back to what we all asked earlier. Necessary, why? How? What's the point? What's the purpose? Well, look at verse seven with me. Here's why this modifies why he says, if necessary, verse seven. It's so that, right, there's our key phrase, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why, Peter, may God deem it necessary that we go through suffering, pain, trial, tribulation? Well, he answers that by drawing an analogy, okay? So it's an analogy that the people of his day would have been intimately familiar with. And it was a process of refining gold. Okay, now some of you will have heard this in, in the past, but what they would do if they wanted to get gold as pure as possible, right, they would take the raw material, uh, right, if you ever watch that show Gold Rush on Discovery Channel, you kind of watch them do this sometimes. They take the gold and they heat it up as hot as they can get it, hotter and hotter and hotter. And as the hotter they get the gold, the more the impurities rise to the top. And then they take something that was called dross. They take something and they swipe it away and knock it off the top. And then they heat it again and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And then the impurities rise to the top and they sweep it away. And as the impurities are, are, are brought to the surface and as the impurities are dealt with, what's left behind is a substance that looks more like what it was originally intended to be. Peter says, this is us going through suffering and trial. He says when the fire gets turned up, right, when the heat, when the heat of pain and suffering and difficulty, when that gets turned up in our lives, all these impurities that are mixed in with our faith start to come to the surface and get revealed. He says when the heat gets turned up, Tons of little parts of our lives that are not surrendered to the Lord start coming out. And by analogy, what Peter is saying, the refinement process is when those things start coming up, that we're asking the Spirit to come in and clean them out and get them out of us. And when that happens, what's left behind is a Christ follower that looks a little bit more like we've always been intended to be, which is, Romans chapter 8, predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Peter, why may God deem it necessary that I suffer? Because God deems it necessary that you be closely, intimately related to him. And sometimes pain and suffering and trial does that in ways other things simply cannot. And so Peter says, sometimes the heat gets turned way up and the pain gets really acute and the suffering and despair gets really palpable. And in those moments, 
some of these impurities, we start becoming aware of them. Now we can either, like Job's wife, shake our fist at God and say, no more, I'm done with you. Or we can ask the Spirit, show me, come in, clean it out, and leave me behind more closely related to Jesus than I was before. So we, along with Peter's readers, say, why? Peter says, because the best possible place for any of us to be is more intimately related to our Savior. Okay, and that is theologically true, it's biblically true, and I think it's accurate to the text. That, to be candid, is easy to preach as it relates to the expositional logistics. It is experientially very hard to do. And one of the things that makes it so difficult is if we do not value what suffering produces, we will not deem it necessary to walk through it faithfully. And I do not uphold myself as a model of properly valuing what it produces, but I do know this. If intimacy with Christ is of our preeminent concern, we will navigate even the most difficult paths to get us there. So Peter says, God may deem it necessary. Why? Because he wants all of our hearts knit closely with his. It's a short time compared to eternity. It is really painful. It is maybe necessary. And it can come home to us in a thousand different ways. And then Peter says in verse 7 at the end that it may be found found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we think about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is uh, its second coming language, okay, it's the, you know, the fancy theological word eschatology, the end times. It's the, it's the big moment when Christ returns. All things are set right again. And we're used to thinking of that moment within that context of praise, glory, and honor of all being directed to Jesus. And that's true. We will do that. That is not what Peter is talking about here. Peter is actually saying, at this moment of revelation of Jesus, something else is going to happen. Everyone who has persevered until the end, that has walked this road, that has counted intimacy with Christ of supreme value above all things, Peter's actually saying when Jesus comes back, he will look at those and say, I praise you, I bless you, I honor you. This is Christ-directed honor towards his people. And that is a fantastic, almost unimaginable thing to consider. But that's Jesus looking at his people and say, I bless you. You made it. Well done. Through all the trial, through all the pain, through all the suffering, You didn't let go of your living hope. 
Then Peter in verse 8 says this, So you've not seen him, you love him. You do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So how do we do this? Or how do we make it to that day when he says Christ comes back, blesses his people, the day when we get crowns only to return them and throw them at his feet in worship? How do we get to that day? I think Peter lays out a couple things for us. And the first one is this. He talks about, though you don't see him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you will love him. I think Peter has, in writing that uh, verse, a very specific night in view. That I think as he's writing to this dispersed group of Christians throughout the Roman Empire that are suffering. I think in the back of his mind, he's remembering about 30 or some 35 years earlier that he was in a locked room with a bunch of his buddies and they were scared and they were afraid. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He just appears. All right, and they're elated and, and they're in awe and they're praising and they're worshiping. They can't believe they see him right? because they just saw him get crucified and now they're beholding him in, in front of them and Everybody is thrilled, except Peter's buddy Thomas. And Jesus going around the room, you can imagine, you know, hugs and, you know, whatever the first century equivalent of a fist bump is and high fives and it's, he gets to Thomas and Thomas says, I don't know about it. I'm not sure. Show me your side. Show me your hands, then I'll believe. So Jesus does it, and Jesus says, Hey, Thomas, blessed are you, for you have seen. And then I think Peter remembers listening to Jesus say this, But Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. What's, I think, the first thing that's helpful in navigating the difficult road Peter has illuminated for us is remembering that way back on that night, the Son of God and His omniscient knowledge had you and me on His mind. Blessed are those who do not see but still believe. It's the same words Peter writes to these dispersed believers and it's the same words that come home to us now. You are blessed in the name of Christ because you have not seen but you believe. And what's the next thing? Well, he says this in verse 9, that you will one day obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If this life was all that there is, we would terminate on our pain. Peter says, if you want to navigate it, if you want to walk the road, where suffering produces intimacy and that intimacy is of supreme value, you've got to remember this is not the final stop. This is not the final destination. We are headed somewhere to a new heavens and a new earth where everything that is now wrong will never be again. 
where every experience of pain will never occur. Peter says, remember, we are going there. We will be there with Christ. So when he says obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, that's an ultimate obtaining. And the idea is a completion. It's all going to be made whole one day. It's the fact that God keeps us so we keep going, but not aimlessly, squarely aimed at a future reality. When we rule and reign and live in the glory of the Son of God. So Peter says, you want to navigate it, look back. There was a room in Jerusalem, what, you know, 1900-something years ago, 1990 years ago, where Jesus said, hey, blessed are you because you hadn't seen me, but you believe. So you look back, you look forward and say, and we're going to be with him. It says, and in keeping those in view, You value intimacy and every path that may get us there. I'll close with this. It was, I don't actually remember when. I think it was before the snow, the big snow that happened in uh, February. But these kind of random, is it just a random really windy day? I don't know if it was January or February when it was. But I remember a, a tree branch pretty big tree branch fell off one of the trees in our backyard and was just laying in the grass. And I was watching, I was kind of watching the tree, I was looking at the branch and I thought, one day I will use that as a sermon illustration. <laughs> right, so be lucky you're not a pastor, that's how you think about life. It's, uh, no. He could be an illustration one day. About uh, and now today is the day for the tree branch illustration. I looked at that tree and here's what Here's what I watched. The top of the tree was violently swaying back and forth. The further I made my way down the tree and got to the roots, the further you went down, the less the tree moved. That is true of us when it comes to pain and suffering. The closer and closer and closer we are to being rooted in Christ and intimately related to him. The closer we get, the less the winds of pain and suffering and trial and persecution, the less they toss us. But the further we get, the more we run The higher up we go on that tree, when those winds come, they toss us violently to and fro. So first of all, here is the reality. There are going to be some branches that get blown off and come crashing to the ground. But I assure you, when we are rooted in Christ, the tree will not fall. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful. But maybe not always for our pain and our trials and our sufferings, they're hard. We would not choose them. 
But looking back at some of them, I do think we would choose the results, which is intimacy with you. And so when it comes and the pain will come and the impurities of our faith get revealed, we pray that you would sweep them away, that we would taste deeper intimacy with you. God, may you build us on a rooted foundation that praises you that are a God that's rich in mercy, powerful to save us, powerful to keep us, giving us a living hope, a promised inheritance. May we, may we be comforted that when we look back, you thought of us as you spoke to Thomas. May we look forward to know we will be with you one day. But until that day comes, give us the strength to value intimacy, to walk faithfully, to be rooted in you so that the winds of pain and suffering do not toss us as they once would. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, there was another night uh, when Christ was with his disciples. It was before his death. And on that night, he celebrates what we've come to know as communion. It's kind of the, it's the New Testament Passover meal. So if you have uh, this uh, communion, uh, the, the bread and cup element, this kind of two-in-one deal, I uh, invite you to go ahead and pull that out as we come to a time of remembrance. It's what Jesus said on that night. Do this as often as you will. Though I would say come to it in a biblical manner this morning, meaning this, that if you are sideways relationally, with someone here, the biblical exhortation would be do not take communion this morning until that relationship is, is reconciled. If you're here this morning and have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, tasting his rich love and mercy, we invite you to abstain and make this a moment of observation and maybe, hopefully, Lord willing, today is a day of salvation for you. For those whom God, by his own mercy and grace, has redeemed, we come with joyful remembrance that on the cross, Jesus died in our place. He drank the wrath of God that we could not to set us free that we can live with him forever. So if you'll take this kind of top layer, this outer layer off uh, where you get access to the wafer, we take it out remembering Christ's body broken for us. Take and eat. Then if you remove that next layer, we, just like Christ on the night of his betrayal, passed around the cup to share with his disciples. And as they drank that cup of wine, he told them, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood spilled on your behalf. Take and drink. And as Christ did on that night with his disciples, they moved into song. I invite you to now stand as we will sing together as well.